Hello and welcome to Hardtack episode 25, Battle of Tuetelberg Forest. I am your host, Mike, and we have everyone's favorite Aussie Sam with us in the studio. What's popping, Sam? Uh, nothing much is popping. Just just the weather. It's uh, very, very hot in Australia at the moment. And uh, if yeah. any of our Australian listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah, if, if you guys hear some fan in the background, I apologize. But I would just rather not sit in my room and not have a fan on right now because it's just too hot. <laughs> but anyway. Sitting sit in, in your own sweat. <laughs> yeah, it's so gross. <laughs> um, how are you, Mike? Oh, pretty good. It's raining outside, which uh, is probably, <laughs> I probably should have said so. Yeah, I am very uh, jealous right now. It's Just appropriate for this episode, as we will come to find out. So uh, let's get into some hard mm. tech. Hard tech is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. Quick reminder, the Hardtack socials can be found via our link tree in the episode description. For those that are unaware, you can visit our Anchor landing page and leave us a voice message and we will play it in, in an upcoming episode. You can also check us out on our website and leave us a comment at hardtackpod.com. Don't forget to drop a review on whichever platform you use to consume your Hardtack and show that subscribe button a little love. The year was 9 CE. Autumn winds... Rain and cool air blew through the trees of western Germania's forest. The waters of the Rhine River were beginning their annual swell in the wake of summer's heat. Though the autumns of Germania were relatively moderate, the season was one of transition, and marked by a climate subject to swift change, even week to week at times. So it was in September, and the north of the Germanic central uplands, when a certain Roman general marched his men into a pass between Calcris Hill and dense, boggy swampland. Unbeknownst to the Romans, they were marching into a bloody, hellish gauntlet that, for them, was to characterize their last days on earth. The days that followed were a harrowing bloodbath that destroyed three veteran Roman legions and rocked the Roman Empire and its leader to the core. This is the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. Let's take some time to first get an idea of what Roman expansion in Germania looked like before the fateful battle in the year 9 CE. Before the great Roman dictator Julius Caesar uttered the words A tu Brute, he first marched through Gaul. His conquest in Gaul during the mid-first century BCE left the Celtic tribes fragmented and their power base weakened. Romanization of the provinces was in full swing, and the Rhine River served as a natural boundary and the unconquered lands of Germania in the east, 
Caesar's excursions into Germania interior was the beginning of years of warfare between the Romans and the Germanic peoples east of the Rhine. After Julius Caesar, Emperor Augustus Caesar continued expansion in Germania. Military presence in the region increased and Augustus's adoptive son, Nero Claudius Drusus, was given the task of furthering Roman conquests in Germania. However, the goal was pacification, not eradication. Drusus and the Romans wanted to conquer the tribes to keep them in a state of subservience to Rome. So Drusus divided his forces into two armies and assigned one to Germania Inferior and the other to Germania Superior. These two terms were designations used by the Romans and simply meant Lower Germania and Upper Germania. In 12 BCE, the tribes of Germania Superior were forced into submission. Drusus shifted his focus to Lower Germania, and by the time of his death in 9 BCE, he and his forces had subjugated tribes as far as the Elbe River and Eastern Germania. Rome's continued efforts at expansion did not end with Drusus. Drusus was the brother of Tiberius Julius Caesar, the second Roman emperor. A successful general, Tiberius recovered Roman legion standards lost in Parthia, pacified Pannonia, and found great popularity among Roman soldiers. The man was respected, but more than that, people genuinely liked him. Tiberius, among other generals such as Marcus Phoenicius and Lucius Ahenobarbus, continued with campaigns in Germania until the year 6 CE. 6 CE, at least in the minds of Roman leadership, marked the year of Germania's pacification. Little active resistance remained. The resettlement of various tribes to more heavily Roman-occupied lands ensured continued pacification and surveillance. The last thing the Romans wanted was tribal uprising. It was best to keep those with a higher potential of rebellion closer to more concentrated Roman military positions. The supposedly pacified province was dubbed Germania Magna, and its integration into the Roman Empire truly began. But the integration of a large, wild, and barbaric land needed a leader who could govern the province, providing the Roman emperor with a sense of security and certainty while he focused on more pressing matters. So Emperor Augustus appointed the ill-fated Publius Quintilius Varus to the position of governor in 7 CE. He could never have predicted how devastating for Rome his decision would be. Publius Quintilius Varus was born in 46 BCE to a patrician family. His father, Sextus Quintilius Verus, was a, re- was a Republican inquestor during the civil war against Pompey. Publius was a Roman politician made general under Emperor Augustus, and it's important to note he had none of his father's Republican tendencies. He became a political friend of Augustus and was, and was made quaestor in 21 BCE. He is most remembered for his devastating loss of three Roman legions during the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. From the beginning, Varus was of the mindset that any form of battle need not occur. According to Paetacullus, Varus, quote, was a man of mild character and of quiet disposition, somewhat slow in mind as he was in body. Paetacullus further states that Varus was also, he entertained the notion that the Germans were a people who were men only in limbs and voice, and that they, who could not be subdued by the sword, could be soothed by the law. End quote. Varus was not entirely incorrect in believing that peace was sustainable as Tiberius, who later became Roman emperor after Augustus, had created a peace, fragile as it was, between the Romans and, Germ- and Germanic tribes through diplomatic means between 4 to 5 BCE. Varus arrived in Rome in the middle of a significant political change. Gaius and Lucius, two of Augustus's grandsons, were designated as his successors. 
Tiberius resided in Rhodes after leaving Rome. However, Augustus's new plan was a failure because both grandsons died within the space of less than two years from each other. Varus spent the summer prior to the events of September 9th, 9 CE, holding court and focusing on legal procedures and further, demanding tribute from and treating poorly under Roman law, the native Germans. His diplomatic conduct sparked the beginnings of Germanic revolt. Arminius, chieftain of the Germanic Cheruski tribe, was born in 18 BCE. Arminius was the eldest son of Cheruski chief Segemer. Segemer is believed to have given both Arminius and his younger brother brother. Segamo gave both Arminius and his younger brother Flavus over to Rome as child hostages in order to make peace with Rome when the boys were about 10 years old. After being handed over to Rome, the brothers learned Latin and were trained in in Roman warfare. Arminius was raised and educated as Roman nobility and honoured with the equestrian rank. The child hostage system was standard practice in Rome and was not only practiced by the ancient Romans. The practice extended well into the Middle Ages. The idea was that the child exchange ensured an agreement was honoured or to guarantee the good behaviour of subject peoples. Rather than being being treated as a hostage in the typical sense, the individual was kept in the palace of the emperor or king and treated as a royal guest. In the case of Varus and his brother Flavus, the Romans hoped to instil Roman values and loyalty in the Germanic brothers who would later return to their tribe and operate as Roman agents among their people, keeping the tribe in line and sympathetic to the Roman cause. The boys received a Roman education, were taught Roman customs and laws, and indoctrinated with the Roman way of life. The brothers later participated in the massive Pannonian and Illyrian revolts of 7-9 CE, with the armies commanded by Tiberius Claudius Nero, the stepson of Emperor Augustus. Arminius was sent to the Rhine to work for Varius about the year 8 CE. Varius was tasked with making Greater Germany, a collection of tribal lands east of the Rhine, a full-fledged Roman province. In Tiberius's operations in 4-5 CE, the tribes had been largely subdued. Tiberius had won more through discussions and diplomacy than he had through 20 years of battle. Varius, however, treated the locals like slaves and demanded tribute, and the tribes soon began to revolt. Arminius, the charismatic auxiliary commander very slight and trusted, was also a helpful intermediary with the tribal nobility. Varus marched his force of three legions and supporting auxiliaries into central Germania during the summer of, of 9 CE from Xanten on the Rhine. Varus' army travelled down the Lipe River before heading north to the Wesser Hills. In the heart of Cheruski country, he established a camp on the upper Wesser River. Tribesmen came to the vast Roman camp to trade while Varus collected tribute and administered Roman justice and law. The goodwill of Arminius and Segema was really a ploy to deceive Varus until it was time to cast off the Roman yoke. Arminius understood that even though the Trusci had been granted federated status inside the Roman Empire, his people were not treated equally. He believed that the inhabitants of Germania had been robbed of what little wealth they had by Rome, which had taken their youth to serve in its legions. Even the land itself was damaged by the Romans, who cleared ancient, sacred woods of their timber. In order to plan the demise of the Romans, Arminius met the chieftains in a covert glade. Following his Roman education, Arminius was reunited with his father, Segema, and together they developed a false relationship of goodwill with Varus, meeting and dining with him on a regular basis. 
Arminius was respected and well-liked by Varus, and often travelled between the Romans and the tribes to deliver messages and execute diplomatic tasks. Exploiting his position of trust, Arminius and his father began plotting an ambush against Governor Varus and his legions. Conspiring with the chieftains of neighbouring tribes, Arminius's plot boiled down to this. He informed Varus of a false rebellion in the, in the tribal lands of Brookteri in the northwest of Germania Magna. Varus, in response to the false report, was determined to prevent any uprising and so gathered his legions to mid-north and suppress the tribal unrest. And what's interesting is that Varus was warned by a rival or Arminius that the report was false. A Cheruscan nobleman named Segestus had gone to Varus and warned him of Arminius' of Arminius's betrayal. However, Varius was fond of and trusted Arminius and so di- dismissed the claim. Why would Segestus do this to his own people, though? And it just so happens that Arminius had married Segestus' daughter against his wishes. Without spoiling anything now, let's just say Segestus later got revenge. On the first day of the Legion's march to put down the false uprising, Arminius suggested to Varius that he and a group of selective Germani warriors be given leave to range further ahead and gather Germanic allies sympathetic to the Roman cause to join the legions and crush the uprising. Varus, fully trusting, granted the request. Arminius did in fact rally the tribal warriors. However, they were rallied against the Romans. Arminius's conspiracy was in full swing. So let's take a second to look at force composition for, for the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. The forces were incredibly lopsided. And the Romans had a, an advantage of about uh, at a two to one ratio. So Roman forces were the 17th, the 18th, and the 19th Roman legions, and they were further augmented by six squadrons of cavalry and six auxiliary forces. This is a rather large force, and the fighting prowess of the Roman legions was nothing short of legendary. Germanic numbers were much less. Opposing the Romans were warriors of multiple tribes that had come together to form a strong fighting force united in throwing off the heavy yoke of Roman rule. The Cherusci, Marci, Chatti, Brooktiri, Chalci, and Sicambri tribes were all represented at the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. Estimates of total numbers among both the Romans and the Germanic tribes vary wildly. Total Roman strength is a bit more accurate given the recorded history of Roman force composition. We know approximately how many men were in a legion from period to period. So we know that there were three legions at the battle, so the men among the legions can be conservatively estimated at about 20,000. With the addition of cavalry and auxiliary forces, numbers could range as high as the mid-30,000s. The estimated 2 to 1 ratio indicates that Germanic strength fell somewhere around 15,000. So for all intents and purposes, there were roughly about 25,000 Romans and somewhere between 12 and 15,000 Germanic warriors at the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. As Varus and the Roman legions marched north on the first day, there was no action. The Germanic tribes were waiting for the column of Roman soldiers to reach a certain pass. The pass ran between Calcris Hill and a bog. The bog is known as Grossus Moor, meaning Great Bog. Calcris Hill, or Calcristerberg in German, sat to the west of the bog, and between the two ran a narrow strip of land about 220 meters in width. Now, 220 meters may seem wide, but for three legions, their auxiliaries, a cavalry regiment, and a supply train, 220 meters quickly becomes narrow. 
To give this a bit more perspective, it should be noted that the Romans called what we now know as the site of the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, Saltus Tuetoburga Nasus, which translates to Teutoburg Narrows. Varus and his legions knew where they were marching to and through which pass, yet found nothing awry, even with Segestus' warning. Varus's column of Romans extended about 12 kilometers in length. It was on the second day of marching that the column reached the pass. Now, according to Roman histories, the weather had been less than desirable for an army on the move, with heavy rain drenching the men and the earth. Water and mud had flooded the bog, filled the pass, and filled the pass as it ran down Calcris Hill. The natural geography of the land made the pass a wet and muddy mess for the Romans. Having ranged ahead and gathered the Germanic warriors, Arminius and his forces had positioned themselves along Calcris Hill and over the pass. Fortifications of wood and sand had been erected, and the warriors sat in patient hiding, waiting to strike at the legions. Their time for vengeance was moments away. It was during this time of greatest confusion. The legions spread out due to the rain, drenched muddy terrain, and the continuing poor weather conditions that the Germanic forces attacked. Cassius Dio wrote, quote, The barbarians suddenly surrounded them on all sides at once, coming through the densest thickets. End quote. Dio explains in his history that the Germanic warriors launched volleys of arrows down among the Romans, spreading death and further confusion, then closed in on the helpless legions and slaughtered them. Germanic warriors came rushing, screaming down the slopes of Calcris Hill, their blood red-hot with adrenaline and savage fury in their veins. The Romans were entirely surprised and entirely unprepared. Thick in the mud and mire, the Romans were unable to execute any sort of counter or form any organized defense. The men of the legions found themselves scattered among supply trains and unarmed civilians. After the initial attacks, the Romans set about preparing makeshift camps to consolidate those that had survived and tend to their wounded. Further attention was given to salvaging damaged supplies. This was only day one of what was to prove a three-day gauntlet of hell. Day two saw the Romans with some semblance of organization, and they set off further through the pass in pursuit of open country. However, loss of life was still great. The warriors of the tribes continued to harass the Roman column from above and from all sides. Already battered from the severe mauling on the first day, the Roman column struggled to fend off the seemingly endless attacks. The Germanis' anger and bloodlust were fierce. At the end of the second day, both the Romans and the tribal warriors rested. The Romans made camp on a low hill. The Germani remained behind their fortifications, plotting and reorganizing for the final day of slaughter. Upon the dawning of day three, the Romans began advancing into the woods once again. Cassius Dio records, They defended themselves oh, quote, They defended themselves against their assailants, but suffered their heaviest losses while doing so. End quote. Though a large portion of the Roman column was shattered on the first day of battle, and casualties further mounted on the second, day three was the bloodiest day. The Romans moved from open terrain in the pass back into an area heavily wooded on both sides. Imagine for a moment, if you will, having survived two days of harrowing battle, drenched in rain, mud, and the blood of fallen comrades. You're advancing in a bruised and morally defeated formation from open terrain and to a pass walled in by trees that you know are bursting with angry rival, <laughs> tribal warriors that wish for nothing other than your death. It must have been mental torture for the Romans. As they were likely all too aware, the ambush began once the column was among the trees. Expecting an attack, 
the Romans attempted to coordinate their infantry and cavalry in a deadly Roman counterattack. After all, Roman military prowess was legendary. However, their tactics failed them this day, as the two forces collided with each other in the confusion of a narrow fighting space with ill-suited terrain. Further damning the Romans was the addition of Germanic tribes who were initially neutral parties in the attack, but now saw that joining with Arminius meant victory. The battle came to a close on the fourth and final day of the slaughter. Weather conditions had not improved and, according to Dio, had actually worsened. Torrential rain, gusting wind, and absolute exhaustion were all weaponized against the remaining Romans. By this point, the Romans knew that their defeat was the only possible outcome. So Varus and his officers died at their own hands. Quote, Varus, therefore, and all the more prominent officers, took their own lives. End quote. The hope of the Roman legions failed. Men refused to fight and simply allowed the Germanic warriors to kill them. These men were so disheartened, so battle-fatigued, so hopeless, that they stood or sat on the muddy, blood-soaked ground and waited for the blades and arrows of the Germanic tribes to end their miserable existence. Varus's body was later found by the Germani and mutilated, his head removed and sent to Emperor Augustus. So here we are after three days of hell. Varus is dead, three Roman legions, cavalry and their auxiliary, have been smashed, brutalized in this narrow pass in Teutoburg Forest. We don't want to crucify him too much, but really this all amounts to three key failures made by Varus. The first was that of intelligence. Not all of the Germanic chieftains were in agreement with the plot to revolt, and in fact one chieftain elected to remain neutral and took no part in the battle at all. Further still, as we already stated, Segestus went to Varus with the news of revolt as he was loyal to the Romans, but Varus dismissed the claims as slander because of his feelings towards Arminius. This was Varus's greatest failure and largest contributing factor to the loss of the Roman legions at the Battle of Teutoburg Forest. Having been given... Having been given direct intel detailing the plot from a tribal chieftain, Varus ignored the warning. Peter Cullis writes, quote, This was disclosed to Varus through Segestus, a loyal man of that race and of illustrious name, who also demanded that the conspirators be put in chains. But fate now dominated the plans of Varus and had, and had blindfolded the eyes of his mind. And so Quintilius refused to believe the story. End quote. In this instance, Varus had the opportunity to halt all troop movement westward, and rather than proceed with operations, began an investigation into the claims while organizing diplomatic meetings between Roman leadership and Germanic tribal chiefs. But Varus chose war. The beginnings of revolt can be seen in analysis of the treatment of Germanic tribes by the Romans under various rule. Florus writes, quote, He had the temerity to hold an assembly and had issued an edict against the Chatti, just as though he could restrain the violence of barbarians by the rod of a lictor and proclamation of a, her of a herald, end quote. Further evidence of his, of his mistreatment and impact on relations with the Germanic tribes was documented by Cassius Dio. Quote, He strove to change them more rapidly. Besides issuing orders to them as if they were actually slaves of the Romans, he exacted money as he would from subject, from subject nations, end quote. In becoming the governor of the provenance of Germania, Varus began his rule with rapid, explo exploitive changes, imposing strict Roman law on the tribes. Diplomatic meetings to discuss treaty and regulation between the native people and Romans would have served to bring about mutually agreed-upon standards of conduct. And finally, as a general, 
Varys was lacking. As has already been stated, he was dim in mind and body. Having moved further into Germanic territory, Varys had multiple outposts and villages scattered throughout the region, but these dispersed territories required protection. According to Cassius Dio, quote, Consequently, he did not keep his legions together, as was proper in a hostile country, but distributed many of the soldiers to helpless communities, end quote. Having ignored warnings, Varys moved his legions west. They were forced thin and stretched out along a narrow path between the already stated Calcris Hill to the southwest and Swampland to the northeast. Further making movement difficult was the weather conditions the day of the ambush, described by Dio as violent rain and wind, which separated them still further, while the ground that had become slippery around the roots and logs made walking very treacherous. Varys scattered his legions through hostile territory, ordered a march into land that had been reported as the site of an impending ambush, and ignored the weather conditions that made movement difficult for his men on an already dangerous path. These three critical mistakes combined to create the fatal sequence of events. Had Varys exercised restraint and tact rather than expedience in the dispersion of his legions, stronger command and control over outposts in the region would have been possible. His further dismissal of an ambush against his forces and the subsequent march into the dangerous territory was in opposition to maintaining dominance in the region. Had he taken the conditions of terrain and weather into consideration and found an alternate route, or even delayed his march northwest for more desirable weather conditions, casualties could have been reduced or even avoided depending on the Germanic response to his actions. What's incredible is that all these failures stacked up and the mind of most commanding generals would have resulted in alternative action. He's already got some intelligence that something's amiss. He's already aware of the fact that people are upset because his diplomacy sucked. But then he spread his folks thin and, knowing that the weather was bad, still marched into a known treacherous pass. All these factors did not ring any alarm bells in the mind of Varys. Dim-witted indeed. The Germanic tribes commanded by Arminius in the ambush on the Roman legions sent a shock through Roman leadership. Augustus received the news poorly. Cassius Dio writes, Augustus, when he learned of the disaster to Varys, rent his garments, as some report, and mourned greatly. Emperor Augustus was said to have been haunted by the defeat and was recorded as being overcome with grief and cried out, Varys, Varys, give me back my legions. For the Germanic tribes, the victory was great in that the Romans were pushed back, back from the borders of the Rhine, a boundary that would serve as a permanent border between the tribes and the Romans. Arminius became a hero to the Germanic tribes as well as to the German people 1,600 years later, when his legacy served to inspire the Germans in their war against their modern Varius, Napoleon Bonaparte. Varius's decisions resulted in the loss of the 17th, 18th and 19th Roman legions, weakening the power of the Roman Empire as a whole and causing a reduction in Roman influence in Germania. The Roman forces were annihilated at the end of the battle. The Germanic tribe kept the coveted eagles of the Roman legions. Eagles of the Roman legions were kept by the winners as outward symbols of their victory, whereas Varus is claimed to have died on, on his own sword. After seven years, only two of those were ever recovered. The legions' numbers were never reused to commemorate the lost legions. It makes sense why Suetonius claims that when Augustus learned of the defeat, he sobbed and hid his head against a door. Quote, he suffered but two severe defeats, those of Lollius and Verus, both of which were in Germany. Of these, the former was more, was more humiliating than serious, 
but the latter was almost fatal since three legions were cut to pieces with their general, his lieutenants, and all of the auxiliaries. When the news of this came, he ordered that watch to be kept by night throughout the city to prevent the outbreak and prolonged the terms of the governors of the provinces, that the allies might be held to their allegiance by experienced men with whom they were acquainted. He also vowed great gains to Jupiter Optimus Maximus, in case the condition of the Commonwealth should improve, a thing which had been done in the Cimbric and Marsic Wars. In fact, they say that he was so greatly affected that for several months in succession, he cut neither his beard nor his hair, and sometimes he would dash his head against the door, crying, Quintilius Verus, give me back my legions! And he observed the day of the disaster each year as one of sorrow and mourning. End quote. The Battle of Teutoburg Forest, year 9 CE, saw major losses to Roman power in Europe due to the actions of Governor Verus. The calculated betrayal of the child hostage turned Roman liaison to the Germanic tribes would be made manifest due to Varus's disregard for intelligence of enemy forces, straying from doctrine and troop movement, and dismissal of terrain and weather conditions and their impact on his legions. The battle was a decisive battle in that future geography, warfare, and relations between the Roman Empire and Germania would be determined as a result of the outcome. So that's it for Hardtack episode 25. Tune in next week as we go back even further in ancient history and look at the life of Philip II of Macedon. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.